Good morning. You may be seated. My name's Matt Quintana. I'm the pastoral intern here. I'm also a student over at Multnomah Biblical Seminary. I get to study the Bible there and train to go into ministry in the future. I actually start school again tomorrow, so I'm excited for that. I'm thankful for this opportunity to preach again this summer before I go, go back to my classes. So that's a little bit about me. My question now is, who are you? Who are you? It's a simple question, but nevertheless, it's an important one. Knowing who you are ought to shape how you live. One of the main differences between Christianity and the teachings of the world is revealed in this question. At every point, the world teaches us that what you do defines who you are. Think about when you meet someone for the first time. One of the first questions you usually ask is, well, what do you do? As if knowing what they do will allow us to understand who they are. On the contrary, Christianity teaches us that who we are, our identity, is defined by Jesus. This identity then transforms what we do. We understand who we are by reading God's word and learning of what God says about himself and about us and about what he has done for us and to reconcile us to him. And that then shapes how we live. As Christians, we can only live rightly when we understand our identity. So an important question to ask ourselves this morning is, who are we? As both individuals and as the body, the church, who are we? If we answer this rightly, it will shape the way we live. Thankfully, the book of 1 Peter has a lot to say about this question. It offers us some great insights into our identity as the people of God. But what we find there may be surprising. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse 11. 1 Peter 2 marks a new major section in the letter. It extends through 4.11. And at this point, Peter is focused primarily on our identity as God's people. Again, who we are and how we relate to one another. Now he moves into practical exhortation and instruction on how we are to live as God's people, especially in relation to unbelievers in the midst of a society that is at odds with and even hostile toward the church and her values. He instructs us in what to do only after showing us who we are. I'm going to read our passage for us. It goes from... Again, chapter 2, verse 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as those sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, 
that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Submit as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So though Peter introduces a new emphasis here, this next section is very much built on what has come before it. As he shifts into exhorting his readers to live godly lives, he builds on the foundation of God's grace that he has explained in everything he's said before. And so as we move into this next section, it's especially important to remember what Peter's told us about who we are. Only a couple of verses ago, he said this about the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Knowing who we are helps us to understand the ethical commands that Peter is going to lay out for us. So here is the main point of our passage this morning. While in exile, Christians are to live godly lives by submitting to human authorities in order to witness to non-Christians. It's our truth statement. Let me say it again. While in exile, Christians are to live godly lives by submitting to human authorities in order to witness to non-Christians. As Peter begins, he reminds his readers of the manner in which they're to carry out the following commands. He says, it is as sojourners and exiles. Other translations use the words alien, uh, aliens or strangers or foreigners. Grasping the significance of these terms is absolutely vital for understanding, understanding this passage and even more for grasping what Peter is saying in this letter. This is now the third time he has called Christians sojourners or exiles. In 1 Peter, exiles or strangers are those who have been chosen by God and given new birth by the Spirit. As God's people, they belong to Him alone. They've been set apart for relationship with him. They've been consecrated for a life of devotion to Jesus Christ. And so the reason that Christians are sojourners and exiles is because they are gods. What does the fact that we are aliens and strangers mean? For one, we are distinct from the world in which we live, alienated, from the values and priorities that characterize our society and culture. This means that our mindset and our lifestyle must be decidedly divergent from the world around us. Secondly, we are only temporarily citizens of this earth. Our status as residents here is not eternal, nor is it most central. Ultimately, we belong to the kingdom of God. A more glorious destination awaits us, and we should long for this future heavenly home. The ramifications of these realities are enormous. The relationship of Christians to society is conceptualized here as those who appreciate, respect, and value their host, 
but nevertheless maintain their own distinct identity within it. Peter's calling us as his readers to recognize that we live in an alien place that has different values and practices than those appropriate for the holy and elect people of God. This is true and relevant for all Christians in all times, whether they lived in modern-day Turkey during the first century, as Peter's original, original recipients did, or whether they live in America in the 21st. At the end of his letter, Peter refers to the church in Rome as she who is in Babylon. Did you catch that? He says the church in Rome is located in Babylon. It's because in the Bible, Babylon becomes a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Babylon stands for the ungodly world system and uh, its entirety. It stands for every human society and culture that is in opposition to the things of God. Babylon is thus not bound to any point in the past or the future, though the historical Babylon didn't exist when Peter wrote the manifestation of evil it represented had arisen again and again throughout history and it continues to do so. In fact, I'm convinced that if the New Testament authors were writing today, they would call America the new Babylon. It's not to say that we should hate our country. It's simply to admit that we live in a nation that is inherently opposed to God. The priorities and ideals of our society are fundamentally at odds with Scripture. There's no better example of this incong incongruity than modern-day politics. We live in a day where political tensions are as high as ever. Never have two parties been so polarized. And never has the temptation been so strong for Christians to forsake their discreet witness and join hands with a particular political group. We cannot afford to forget that we serve Christ, the greater ruler, and we are to represent his kingdom here. His kingdom looks nothing, not a bit, like our present political power structures and parties, whether on the left or the right and anywhere in between. Unfortunately, far too often, especially here in the United States, professing Christians forsake their biblical identity. It's, tra it's, it's truly a tragedy when God's vision for his people is replaced with a religious version of the American dream. So be warned, church, lest we fall prey to the lie that Christ's purposes and values overlap completely with any political party or of our government. There's a type of religion which masquerades under the name of Christianity and yet is more in line with the idolatrous lusts of Babylon than the humble values of Jesus, the Messiah. For them, the Bible is a political weapon and the name of Christ is simply a means to an end. Christians must acknowledge that as foreigners and exiles, we are fundamentally estranged to the values and customs of our society. 
in Christ. Our status and our identity has changed. We've gone from people who were once at home in culture to those who are now homeless and alienated in that same culture. It's critical as Christ's church that we cultivate the mindset of exiles. So Christian, I ask, have you abandoned this identity for allegiance to our country? Have the priorities of our sinful world replaced the values of God revealed in his word? If you profess to be a follower of Christ, you should not feel at home or completely at ease with either major political party. No single party is completely congruent with Jesus and the Bible. If you do feel at ease, it may be a sign that you've placed the values of that party, of power, of man-made structures over the words, values, and realities of Scripture in Christ's kingdom that you're called to represent. We cannot forsake our identity as exiles, and we'll see just how important this is for everything Peter tells us. Again, this identity is going to drive what we do. Verses 11 and 12 now set the theme for the next couple of chapters. And for all of the following commands, we can see how they flow out of what is laid down here in verses 11 and 12. Peter essentially addresses a couple of questions. As a people whose perspective on the world is that of a sojourner, how should Christians live? What manner of life befits aliens? And what follows, Peter provides us with two answers. First, he says that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. By passions of the flesh or fleshly desires, Peter's referring to the natural and sinful desires that people have apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, Paul writes, in Galatians 5, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Look carefully at what Peter says about these desires. He says, they wage war against the soul. He uses a military term, saying that these desires, they battle, they fight, they are at war with our souls. By souls, Peter is not talking about the immaterial part of humans. He has in mind the entire being, their whole person. And so while it's encouraging to note that even those who have the Spirit are not exempt from fleshly desires, we must also heed this warning. The passions of the flesh are not like a pesky younger sibling who won't leave you alone but ultimately means no harm. They're not innocent longings or benign cravings. No, these are dangerous, destructive, menacing desires. The passions of the flesh are not inactive, but they will kill you if they get the chance. And so we must not let them. The Christian life is not a passive let go and let God, but is a fight in which we must engage daily. As the great Puritan John Owen famously, sa famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So Christian, consider your own life. 
What are the fleshly passions which continually assail you? What are the darkest recesses of your heart and soul which go unseen by others but are engaged in a battle for your very life? Selfishness, anger, greed, addiction, sexual immorality, fear of man, jealousy, resentment, lack of self-control. Whatever these sinful desires are, they must be identified and they must be destroyed. But as any believer knows, denying the flesh and fleeing from sin is no easy task. Indeed, on our own, it's impossible to accomplish this. But praise God, this is achievable in Christ. Though we are weak, He is strong. By His power, these commands are attainable because our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in the grace of God revealed in His Son, administered through His Spirit and in His Word. And so, Peter now gives us a second exhortation. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. There are several questions we can ask here. For one, what does Peter mean by honorable conduct and good works, he says in verse 12. He uses this phrase throughout the letter to refer to the new way of life that is demanded of Christians. Here he says that our conduct is to be honorable, or other translations say excellent or good. This word describes something that is attractive, of high quality, that is morally beautiful. And so, what this refers to is a certain way of living that on the whole is to be perceived as good and right and noble and commendable. This conduct is honorable and excellent in God's eyes, but also in the eyes of Gentiles. Who are they? The fact that Peter uses the term here is quite striking since he was writing to Christians who ethnically were Gentiles. They were not Jews. However, their new identity as the people of God was so transformative that it now leads Peter to apply this label to anyone who is not a follower of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. He calls them all Gentiles because they are not in the Messiah. What this means is that non-Christians should be able to perceive the honorable and attractive lifestyle of Christians. And so these good works are not just private acts of piety, but they instead refer to a whole standard of living. It can be observed by those both inside and outside of the community of faith. What this implies then is that there is some overlap in what Christians and non-Christians recognize as good conduct. But that being said, this good is by no means identical for believers and unbelievers. Ultimately, good conduct for the Christian is that which is in accord with God's holiness and His will. Christian fidelity, then, will require actions and beliefs that are unfavorable to the unregenerate world. The challenge given to Christians is to live by the values of society that are consistent with Scripture and to reject those that are not. Where these values clash, we will encounter opposition. Make no mistake, for the Christian who is actually living in accordance with God's Word, the question is not if you will face hostility, it is when. This is why Peter says, when they speak against us as 
evildoers. It's for this reason that the theme of suffering is so prominent in Peter's letter. It occurs, uh, the word suffer or suffering occurs over 16 times in the book. That word, though, never refers to dealing with illness or other tragedies, particularly in view are those suffering because of their Christian faith. This is why Peter addresses those who suffer for doing good, 2.20, for righteousness' sake, 3.13, or for bearing the name of Christ in chapter 4. Despite the assurance of such suffering and opposition, nowhere does Peter advise that we withdraw from society and attempt to avoid it. Instead, Peter says we are to live among non-Christians. He describes why believers are to live excellent and commendable lives. It's because so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. His words here are very similar to those of his teacher. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16 The reason that Christians are to live honorable lives is because in doing so, unbelievers will observe their good works and they'll be compelled to admit that the lifestyle of Christians is morally beautiful. The hope is that this admission will lead them to saving faith in Christ so that God will be glorified on the future day of judgment. Our honorable deeds, then, are to point beyond ourselves. They're to point towards the righteous and holy God who has called us by His grace. This should motivate us to be lights in the world since our good works and our honorable living are ultimately for God's glory. The rest of our passage will now provide examples of how Christians are to embody the exhortation contained in verses 11 and 12. Peter now illustrates some concrete ways in which God's people are to live as aliens and strangers. And so to summarize those last two verses, while in exile, Christians are to live godly lives in order to witness to non-Christians. That's the calling. So how do we do this? What's an example well, verses 13 through 17 tell us, says, will show us that Christians are to live godly lives by submitting to human authorities. In verse 13, we have the primary command, submit or be subject. But to whom? Peter says, to every human institution, whether it be to the governor, or sorry, the emperor as the one who is supreme, or in verse 14, the governors as those sent by him. Peter has in mind here anyone who is in a place of authority in established civilization and government. This includes the top governing authority and also those who are under him, who he has sent out, who represent him. According to verse 14, there is a purpose for the existence of government. It is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. As he said earlier, Peter wants Christians to behave as those who do good, which means that they do what is honorable in the world's eyes to an extent. But what about when what is honorable in the eyes of the world is contrary to the will of God in Scripture? When Peter calls us to submit, he qualifies the command with the important words, because of or for the sake of the Lord. This phrase will then 
both guide and limit what it means for us to submit to governing authorities. So first and foremost, we submit to governing authorities because Christ is Lord. We're not subject to the government because they are perfect and always carry out the will of God. Human governments continually fail to live up to what God expects of them. We see this all the time. So we don't submit because those who are in command are amazing people and we endorse everything they do. You see, any human governing authority is simply that, human. In fact, when Peter uses the word institution in verse 13, the word refers to a creation or a creature. From the outset, Peter's reminding us that these rulers are merely creatures. They've been created by God and exist under his rule and authority. True Christian submission then means adopting the perspective of Jesus reflected in his words to Pilate when he said, you would have no authority at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. True Christian submission to the institutions of this world is an act of tribute to God's authority over them. This primary devotion to the Lord also limits submission to governing authorities because our submission can never be anything that God does not will. These verses should not be understood as calling for mindless obedience and undiscerning loyalty to the government. This command represents only a general truth, that is, what Christians should do in most situations. Most of the time, they should be inclined to obey and submit to governing authorities. However, Jesus alone is ultimate and is Lord, and so if a government commands Christians to contravene God's will, they can and should be resisted. We have a duty for the sake of the Lord to disobey any commands that violate what God has revealed in Scripture and told us He wants us to do. Verse 15 gives us a further reason why Christians are to be subject to governing authorities. It's because God wills it to be so. This idea of submission is not just Peter's. It's God's will for us. So not only does doing good have evangelistic implications, as we saw in verse 12, doing good also overcomes hostility from those same people who oppose and speak against God's people. Peter's convinced that the good and decent lives of Christians will help overcome the resistance that they face in contemporary society. By submitting to the government, Christians demonstrate that they are good citizens and they extinguish the criticisms of those who revile them. Those people, Peter says, are foolish. They display ignorance. What he means is that not that they lack intellectual capacity, but rather, as in the book of Proverbs, that they are foolish because they are morally debased. They do not fear the Lord or walk in His ways. Their ignorance is not innocent, but culpable. It's worth pointing out again that there's no conception of Christians doing whatever a government enjoins. Peter did not envision a society and a government where God's people are always praised and sided with and commended for their good behavior. Instead, his point is that when their lives are habitually excellent and honorable, believers will minimize the threat of slanderous attacks and reveal that charges of wickedness have no basis. 
And so in light of this verse, we can say that there are wrong ways to attempt to silence those who speak against us. It's tempting to resort to heated debates and arguments using our words to defend our beliefs. But when we are slandered and wrongly spoken of as evil, Peter does not summon us to a verbal campaign of self-defense or to the writing of tracts or blog posts which defend our morality. So perhaps it's best if we let our lives do the talking, since for Peter it's our actions that speak louder than our words. Peter is not merely concerned about the outward behaviors of believers, but also the inward motivations that drive this submission. So in verse 16, we find three phrases that will explain the standpoint from which God's people are to submit. This is the stance from which God's people should operate in subordinating themselves to governing authorities. So first, we're to submit as free people, as those who have been ransomed by Christ's blood, Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we're no longer subject to sin and to the futile ways of this world. Second, we are called to submit not as those who use their freedom as a cover-up or a pretext for evil. That we're citizens of heaven and sojourners on this earth does not mean we're free to be insubordinate to the good and just laws established by society. Third, and finally, we are to submit as servants of God. The word servant here could also be translated as slave. This concept is very important in the New Testament. It's counterintuitive, though, to the way that we tend to think. Because according to Scripture, freedom is not the release from bondage into a state of complete autonomy. Freedom is the release from bondage to become a slave to God. In Christ, we've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, Romans 6, 22. Pastor and scholar Tom Schreiner articulates this beautifully. He says, Believers do not enjoy unrestricted freedom. Their freedom is exercised under God's authority. True liberty, according to the New Testament, means that there is freedom to do what is right. Hence, only those who are God's slaves are genuinely free. Only those who are slaves of God are genuinely free. This last point sheds a great deal of light on what it means for us to submit to the government as a Christian. While subordination to governmental authorities is a part of God's will, such, such submission is not absolute or unmitigated since the Christian's ultimate master is God, not any governing authority. Since we've been set free from sin, we are liberated to live in a way that honors the God to whom we owe our allegiance. We do this while living in the midst of an unbelieving society to whom we share no similar obligation. The passage concludes in verse 17 with four summarizing maxims. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The first and last of these instructions focus on relationships outside the believing community and then the middle two focus on relationships within. So first, believers are to honor all people. They're to treat every single person with respect and dignity. 
This includes not only the highest governing authorities, but all people, even on the very bottom of society, the outcast, the poor, the disabled, all are made in the image of God and deserve honor. Second, Christians are to love the brotherhood, it says. Though we love everyone, there's a special kind of bond that we have with one another. We're a brotherhood or a family. It's a unique love. It's different than that which we show to the world. Third, God's people are instructed to fear him. Just as Peter told us in 117, Christians are to live out of a healthy and necessary reverence for the holy and sovereign God of the universe. Finally, we are told to not only submit to the emperor, but to honor him. Notice how this stands in contrast to the last command. Believers are to fear God, but they're to only honor the emperor. The human governing authority deserves respect because of his office, but we are not to fear or have a holy reverence for him like we do for God. When Peter speaks of the Roman emperor, our modern-day equivalent is the president of the United States. For many reasons, honoring and respecting President Trump does not come naturally to a lot of us. I don't think I need to elaborate here, but the fact of the matter is, in order to remain obedient to Christ and his word, we must find a way to display and communicate a basic respect for him as a person and for his God-ordained office, even as we express our dismay and our disagreement at some of his views and his behavior. If you find yourself struggling to do this, I think the best response is to commit yourself to praying for President Trump. This is in line with another imperative in Scripture. Paul urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. 1 Timothy 2. So doing this is not only pleasing to God, but it will also soften your heart towards President Trump and it will arouse godly compassion and respect for him. It's hard to hate someone who you pray for regularly. So no matter where you find yourself politically, I can't think of a better time than now to start praying for our government, especially right before an election. How we live on this earth matters. Those who have experienced the grace of God simply cannot go on living as they once did. The beautiful reality is we live holy lives not to gain God's favor, but out of a realization that we have already received it. For it's not what we do that shapes our identity. It's our God-given identity that shapes all that we do. Friends, remember that we are sojourners and exiles. We're aliens. We are a holy nation, a people who have been purchased by the blood of God's Son. We belong to the Father, and our allegiance is to His Son, Jesus Christ. So cultivate a mindset and imagination that is in keeping with this identity. Let this shape every single thing that you say and that you do. Battle sin Live honorably, submit to human authorities when it is right, and do all of this for 
the glory of God. Remember that while in exile, God's people are to live godly lives by submitting to human authorities in order to witness to non-Christians. We are aliens and we are exiles. But most importantly, we are Christ's. Would you pray with me? Father, we humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge that we are so prone to forget our true identity. We're so quick to see ourselves as a product of what we do rather than who you tell us that we are in Christ. So we ask that you would transform our thinking. Would you impress on us the importance of being sojourners and aliens, the significance of being holy, of being a royal priesthood, would this then shape all that we say and do, especially in a time when things are so polarizing, people are calling for us to fit in somewhere. As your people, we will never fit in. We await our home that is with you. We know that you will be faithful to preserve us and to keep us until the day in which you return and restore creation, inaugurate your kingdom in full, and we are welcomed home. And so we pray that you would sustain us by your grace. And we ask that you would come soon, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.